to pastoral ministry that I uh, have adopted. Uh, I'm going to depart from my uh, outline. I'm going to depart from the program of preaching that I had set for myself and for the congregation as we were going through the book of Proverbs. And this morning, preach a, a sermon that isn't related to that, but is related really to the circumstances of this last week. And uh, I guess I just can't help but do that because uh, a very dear friend of mine this last week was found by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been praying for him for a long time. And in the, um, in the joy of seeing his salvation, I wanted to preach to you today about the joy of salvation. Please turn with me to Romans, the fifth chapter, where we'll take as our text verses 1 to 11. Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Hear now God's word. Therefore, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have had our access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh steadfastness, and steadfastness approvedness, and approvedness hope. And hope putteth not to shame, because the love of God hath been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit which was given unto us. For while we were yet weak, in due season Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, for peradventure for the good man someone would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by him, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And thus far the reading of God's Word. This morning, I want us to look at a reputation for joy that we as Christians are supposed to have. I want us to look at a reason for joy that we as Christians have. And then finally, I want us to look at the response of joy that we as Christians must have, a responsibility to see the joy of our salvation and have that pervade our lives. First of all, then, a reputation for joy. I'm wondering as we begin this morning what you think of when I mention that group of people in our society known as Christians. I mentioned believers or the Christian church. What is the first personal characteristic that comes to your mind? Let me get a little more personal. When I think about that group of Christians who are known as Reformed Christians, or that group of Reformed Christians known as Reconstructionist Christians, when you think of such groups, what's the first impression you have? What kind of reputation do these people have? Well, perhaps we think about people who are serious about sin and its consequences. People who are self-reflective, people who are somber, and people who are grave. Or perhaps you think about people 
who hold to heavy and mysterious theological dogmas, people who are bookish, intellectual, and again, grave. Or perhaps we think about people consumed with concern about the state of society and committed to its reform, people who are dedicated, activistic, and of course, grave. Well, all of these characteristics and many more are fine, and they have an important place, a proper place in the full-orbed Christian life. But you know, there's something conspicuously missing. When I think about Christians as a whole, or Reformed Christians, or Reconstructionist Christians, the first impression I have is rarely one of joy. And it should be. That's conspicuously missing, because that characteristic ought to come to mind when we think of people who are Christians. In fact, it ought to come to mind so brightly, so forcefully, that we just can't miss it and can't forget it. When someone comes into contact with my life, they should see joy, and of course these other things as well. Christians should be known as a rejoicing and as a happy lot of people. And that should be the case for all Christians, but I think especially it should be the case for those of us who have the advantage of a deeper, and hopefully a more accurate understanding of the truths of the gospel. Those in theological circles should above all be joyous people, rejoicing because they have an understanding of so many reasons for being happy. You see, we don't think you have to have mindless emotional experiences and repetitious watered-down doctrine in order to have rejoicing in your heart. We believe that the more you know about the Bible, the happier you're going to get. And the more accurate your perception of the grace of God, the happier you'll get. The more you see the goodness of the good news, the happier you're going to get. And so Scripture, not surprisingly, Scripture demonstrates in just so many ways that joy is a chief characteristic of the Christian life, that joy is a conspicuous mark of the believer, that joy is a central characteristic of the Christian life. Let me just survey this for you. We can't look up all these verses, but just stop and think about it. These are passages I'm sure you know about. In Luke, the second chapter, when the angels came to announce the birth of our Savior, do you remember what was said? Behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Jesus, in his preaching ministry to his disciples, said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Why did Jesus teach? To make you happy. And at the return of Christ's disciples from a preaching mission, what did he instruct them? He exhorted, Rejoice! because your names are written in heaven. At the resurrection of Christ, we read in Luke's Gospel, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. In Acts 8, we read that the Gospel went to Samaria and there great numbers came to it. And so we read these words in conclusion, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13, at Antioch of Pisidia, the Gentiles turned to the gospel. And what does Luke tell us? The characteristic mark of those who believe the gospel. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, Paul converts the Philippian jailer who takes him home. Paul and Silas are taken home and are fed dinner. And there we read, just what you expect, and he rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. 
Paul tells us in Romans 14, verse 17, that the kingdom of God itself, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and, have you got the point yet? Joy in the Holy Spirit. And so the benediction that Paul gives at the end of the book of Romans, and now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In Galatians 5.22, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and all the rest. In Philippians 4.4, he says, which is characteristic of the whole epistle to the Philippian church, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians 1, he described the Thessalonian Christians as having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 1.8, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Peter says of Jesus Christ, Whom having not seen you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Unspeakable joy overwhelms us because we know Jesus Christ. And of course, on the day of judgment, what does Jesus say in Matthew 25? On the day of judgment, the words we will hear are, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. From beginning to end, from the birth of Jesus to the day of judgment, joy pervades the Christian church. Joy characterizes the Christian life. Joy is a mark of the work of the Spirit in us. We are overwhelmed with joy when we come to know Jesus Christ. Yes, we need a reputation for that. There can be any doubt about that. Christians should be known for being a joyous people. And you know, Christians especially should be known for that because they've got a reason for that joy. Now, there's a lot of fake joy in the world. You know that? You probably have had your fill of it too. People have a plastic smile, you know? They're always uh, trying to look on the nice side of things, whistling in the dark. There is a lot of uh, attempt to be happy in very shallow and mindless and self-destructive ways in our world. People want to have a good time. They want to have fun. They want to be happy, but they have no reason to be. And so at best, what they can do is try to cover over their reasons for not being happy with a real um, shallow cosmetic of being happy. No, but I want to suggest to you that those of us who should have a reputation for joy have as well a reason to be joyous. And it's found in Romans, the fifth chapter. Of course, it's found from cover to cover in the Bible. But in Romans 5, we find one of the nicest distillations of that joy that you could ever imagine. I want to go through that with you this morning and note the reason we have for being a happy people. Paul begins the fifth chapter, this glorious chapter in the gospel, when he says, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God. Because we have come to a position of justification before God. And what is justification? Do you understand that precious doctrine that was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, that was at the heart of Paul's preaching, which was the anticipation of all the Old Testament ceremonies that looked ahead to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Do you understand justification? Justification is a right standing with God. Justification is when God says, I declare you and treat you as righteous. The problem, of course, is we aren't. We aren't righteous. 
How can someone who is ungodly come into a position of a right with God? How can he be declared innocent, forgiven, and accepted by God? How can we be justified? And of course, it's the burden of Paul to tell us in the book of Romans that we are justified by faith in Christ. That God looks not upon our own unrighteousness. God looks not at our track record. God doesn't look at my performance, but God rather looks at his son. God looks at the righteousness of Christ and accounts it legally as mine. And so by faith in Christ, being united to him, his record becomes mine, my record becomes his. And so my sins are imputed to the Savior, even as his righteous character is imputed to me. And so Paul says, in being justified, having a right standing because of faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Peace with God, isn't that what it's all about, really? I mean, there are a lot of ways we can talk about this, but when all is said and done, everyone's human life, everyone is aggravated and is uncomfortable until we can be sure that we are right with our Maker. And how can a man be right? How can a man be at peace with God? Well, you need to note that our being at peace with God has nothing to do with our having peace inside us. That's not what Paul's talking about. Having peace with God means that God is at peace with us. For you see, we are his enemies by nature. By our own performance, by our own sins and transgressions, we have set ourselves against the King of Heaven. We have declared war on our Maker. We have become rebels against the Most High. And He is justly angry. His wrath and His curse rest upon us. And we are therefore alienated from God. God, because of His own holy character, should say about us, I want nothing to do with you. You don't belong to me. Depart from me. Indeed, the day of final judgment will bring that declaration. It will be most devastating when God says, Depart into the everlasting darkness. And so we are alienated from God. God is angry with us. But Paul tells us, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Everything is all right. An angry God has been pacified. God no longer holds our sins against us. We are no longer enemies. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have had our access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Paul tells us not only is it in Christ that we find salvation, but it's through Christ that salvation comes to us. How is it that we come into this grace? What is that avenue? What is that door through which we pass that we might enjoy the grace of God, forgiveness, justification, and peace? He says it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who has provided us faith. It's not enough, you see, that Christ dies upon the cross. It's not enough that he rises from the dead and ascends on high. For you see, all of that objective historical truth would have nothing to do with me if I didn't come to faith in him. If Christ had done the work of accomplishing redemption but did not apply it to me by the Holy Spirit, I would still be alienated from God. I would still be in my sin. I would still be an unbeliever. 
And so Paul rejoices that not only have we been justified by faith, but we have come through the work of Christ into this grace wherein we stand. And then what's the conclusion of the matter? Realizing these things, he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. If we're at peace with God, what do we do? We jump for joy. We say, things are all right. My life has been put on the right track. I know my maker. He's no longer angry with me. I'm accepted for the sake of his son. What could possibly get me down? And by the way, that's exactly Paul's thoughts. He says, we don't just rejoice in that. He says, we rejoice in tribulations now. We've become so strange that those things that most people get depressed about, they don't bother us. We're ready for it. Because we know what life's all about. We know where life is going. We know that we're right with the king of heaven. What could ever make me unhappy under those circumstances? You know, it's amazing. He says we rejoice in the hope of glory, the confident expectation that we will receive glory from God and his son. You know, I think of uh, people, the way they daydream, the way I daydream. Sometimes we think about, you know, what if... Uh, you know, a million dollars were given to me. I guess that's not enough these days. Ten million dollars were given to me, okay? And we think about all these things. If we could just have this possession. But, you know, if you could live it at that, and I guess if you're naive about culture and economics and so forth, you might well be the end of a real happy fairy tale. I get this ten million dollars. But if you know anything about the real world, that isn't nearly enough. I not only need to be given ten million dollars, I need to be given an ability to avoid the tax man, and also to invest this money in a place where it's not going to lose its value, its buying power is going to stay up. You know, once I receive this, then there's always the question, can I hold on to it? Can I keep it? But you see, the gift God gives us isn't like that. God has given us peace. God has given us a right standing. God has brought us into a standing of his grace. And Paul says, and we have the confident expectation of glory ahead. You see, God hasn't given us a gift that we have to worry about juggling and holding on to and that sort of He's given us something that has a confidence toward the future. Now do you see why we rejoice? Now do you see why we should be happy? God's not angry with us anymore, and He's not going to get angry with us anymore. God has accepted us, and He always will accept us. God has brought us into His grace, and we will never fall from it. And so he says in verse 3, Now we rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation works steadfastness, and steadfastness approvedness, and approvedness hope. And hope puts not to shame, because the love of God hath been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit which was given unto us. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Literally, the love of God floods our hearts. What is it that uh, characterizes your heart? Is it weighed down with grief? Is it weighed down with a sense of guilt? Is it weighed down with a sense of despair or confusion or a lack of hope? What Paul offers us here in Jesus Christ is hearts that are overwhelmed with love. You see, it isn't enough that God shows us love. You know, a little drop of love would be enough, wouldn't it, for sinners? Indeed, if God were to be in a more generous way, loving in general to us. That would be more than we deserve. But Paul can't leave it at that. He says, no, we are flooded with the love of God. We are just overflowing with the knowledge that we're right with God. We have peace with God. We have hope for the future. And we rejoice in this. And he explains why. And this is some of the most uh, precious 
exposition of the good news that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. When Paul says, For while we were yet weak in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. There's the theme of the gospel. Christ died for the ungodly. You wouldn't expect that. I mean, any other world religion would tell you it's just the opposite. If God's going to do anything, he's going to do it for those who are working for themselves. God helps those who help themselves, remember? I mean, that's what we hear so often. You know, you need to kind of pull up your bootstraps. You need to get yourself into a position where you're worthy of his attention. Well, I have news for you. None of us are. None of us will ever become worthy of God's attention. That's the damnable heresy of the Roman Catholic Church, that men must show by their own good works that they merit the merit of Christ, that they have done something that makes God's salvation appropriate in their lives. Well, the whole point of Paul's gospel is that salvation's not appropriate. It doesn't fit, because we aren't good people. We're ungodly people. And yet the good news is that Christ died for the ungodly. Now, how do we look at it? Paul says, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Who would you die for? My guess is not one of you today would stand up and die for Gaddafi. My guess is not one of you would stand up and die for the, um, the night strangler. I don't think that you would uh, probably die for some of your relatives. You wouldn't die for your next-door neighbor. I'm not exaggerating. I think probably there are some in this room today who wouldn't die for anybody. If we were left to yourself to just to choose who was worth it, you'd probably say, I don't think anybody's life is worth more than mine. Forget it. Paul's right. He says, scarcely for a righteous will one die. Peradventure for a good man, someone might dare to die. There might be somebody that you so respect that you so love, that you might give up your life for that one. How does God work, though? God commends his own love toward us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, there's no question of merit. There's no question of earning this, no question of good works. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By the way, it's just this that gives real punch to Jesus' teaching that we should love our enemies. Because you see, that's what God demonstrated, love for his enemies. Those who had held up their fist in rebellion against him, those who had turned from him and violated his law and become everything unholy and unclean, he died for them. He went to the point of laying down those who would crucify him. You shouldn't uh, deceive yourself. Had you been there, you would have crucified him. You would have been with the throng that said, crucify him. Get rid of this man. And yet he went to the cross praying that God would forgive those who were doing this to him. That's the character of God. You see how far we are from his character, even those of us who are converted. You see how much further we have to go to grow into godliness? God loves his enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. He laid down his life for those who had nothing to commend themselves. And then Paul's doctrine is this in verse 9. Paul says, now look, if God went that far, if God did that much, what will he withhold from you now? 
I mean, when he's given everything, his own precious son, even the point of death and a criminal's death, is as much more than being now justified. Shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? Do you ever have doubts about whether you're going to finally be saved? Do you have questions as to whether you'll persevere to the end, whether you'll maintain faith and commitment and dedication to Jesus Christ? Well, let me tell you something. If the beginning of your new life was in the grace of God, you can be sure the continuance of your new life is likewise in the grace of God. And if that grace of God was victorious at the start, it shall be victorious to the end. Much more then, if we have been justified by his blood, how will God let anything happen to us? It's impossible. If we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. He didn't spare his own son's life to procure our salvation. He will not spare any cost then to see to it that we persevere in salvation to the end. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. He continues to live. He lives evermore. And what is the ministry of our Savior Jesus Christ in this age? What is it that our confession of faith tells us based upon the infallible word of God? Christ ever lives to make intercession for his saints. What is it that Christ is doing now, seated at the right hand of God? Is he in a position of leisure? Is he laying back saying, I've done everything I can, now it's up to you? No. He now intercedes continually for you. And so we shall be saved by his life. As one who has been raised from the dead and ascended on high, he ever lives for us. He not only died for us, he lives for us. And so you shall be saved to the uttermost, to the very end. And then verse 11, which is really the theme of what I want to tell you this morning. Paul says, and not only so, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul says it's not just enough to have these theological truths, not just enough to have the objective fact that Christ has done this, not just enough to have these assurances from God, but he says above all we rejoice. We rejoice in this faith we have in Jesus Christ. We know the joy of salvation. And what kind of response do we give to that? What is the response of joy if we understand these things? Well, Enjoy that personal relationship we have with God. Enjoy it. And it's amazing to me, in my own life and in the life of those that I counsel, so often we have people who have a basis for joy, but they aren't enjoying it. And the reason they aren't enjoying it is because they're not pursuing it. How do we pursue that relationship? Now remember what Paul said. We have peace with God. He is reconciled. No longer is he angry with us. Well, if we have that kind of relationship, why don't we talk to him then? Can you imagine being reconciled to a friend who's been put off for years and then saying, well, now that that's accomplished, I think we'll just go about living our lives separately again? Absolutely not. If God is reconciled, if God is at one with us through the work of his son, if we have peace with God, then let's talk. Let's have an ongoing relationship. Let's listen to his word. Because it's a privilege and a delight to be someone who can open the Bible and this now. Because God has brought me salvation. So the first thing that we want to do 
in responding to the joy of our salvation is to enjoy a personal relationship with God in prayer and Bible reading. And not just sporadically, but daily. As much of it as you can get. Secondly, the joy of our salvation should bring us to share our happiness with others. <laughs> you know, I don't know many people that um, have reasons for happiness that like to keep them a secret. It's just not human nature. You get engaged and you're just on the top of the world and you want everybody to know. You have a baby and you're just so happy about that you want people to know. You've been promoted at work and you've been working so hard for that you want people to know. When we have things that make us happy, we talk. You see, that loosens our tongues. And so if you enjoy salvation, talk about it. Share that happiness with others. Share it with disposition. If people know you as a dour, glum, kind of down-in-the-mouth person, you're not sharing the joy of your salvation. Praise God in the congregation. Come here and say, I want to show people I'm happy. I'm, I'm at peace with God now. And obviously, with a verbal testimony to others about the source of your joy. So share that happiness. Thirdly, give joy the upper hand. That's our problem, you know. We would all agree intellectually with what I'm saying here. We'll all say, we're supposed to be happy. We have a good reason to be happy. But the problem is we have reason to be sad, too. And what we tend to do is we say, okay, I'm going to let the reasons to be sad be stronger than the reasons to be happy. Now, that doesn't make much sense. I can prove it doesn't make sense because James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into different trials. That is, when all the reasons in the world are giving you to be down in the mouth, count it joy. Look at it this way. You should be happy. God's doing a good work in your life. God cares. He's holding on to you. He's forming you. He's developing you. Count it joy. When the world would be sad, you'd be happy. Now, do you see what I'm getting at? We'd better have a reputation for that sort of thing because we always give joy the upper hand. Fourthly, get excited. I don't know how to preach this into you. I, and I, whether I need some kind of injun, in, in, injection, to some kind of a drug to put in you. But you know, the problem is you guys sit there too much and you just kind of take it all in. And then you go about your way and say, I got all this truth up here. Get excited. There's nothing wrong with smiling. There's nothing wrong with getting real happy about coming to church. There's nothing wrong with about, you know, being joyful about the Christian life. Let's get excited about what God is doing what God is doing now in us and what he's going to do in us, what God is doing in others and what God is going to do in others. That should be exciting. We should be looking for further victories for the gospel. It shouldn't surprise us that God saves sinners. He does it all the time. He has the ability to do it. If we just go out there, we'd find that the fields are wide unto harvest. You want to be happy? Go out there and start evangelizing. Share this. Get excited. Look forward to some growth in your life. Don't think, well, I'm in a rut as a Christian. Forget it. God doesn't leave people in ruts. You're going to grow. You're going to get stronger. You're going to understand more. And above all, get excited because you're looking forward to an eternity with him. You think you have reason for happiness now? Paul says, I hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, you know, about the glories that are to come. So I think we better get excited. Fifthly, I think we better serve God with gratitude if we have joy in our salvation, too. So we have to realize that he alone made our lives worthwhile. He alone deserves the thankful response of obedience. If he's been that good to us, every day we should say, God, thank you. I'm yours. What do you want? Here I am, Lord. Send me. I want to do it. One last thing. It may sound a little strange. 
I think we need to cultivate and continue in this joy. If you're like me, probably are, you find that you can understand those things, you can get excited, you can be happy and joyful in your salvation, and then for some reason it kind of goes downhill, kind of in a rut, then you have to get up. Well, I want to suggest that we should cultivate continuance in a joyful spirit. That may mean we have to ask God, don't let my blood sugar get so down that I, that drags me down spiritually. Don't let the opposition that's going to come tomorrow at work or the ridicule of my family because of my faith or our financial problems or whatever it is, God, I know that I'm going to face that tomorrow. Don't let me get down about it. Cultivate a joyful spirit. We should be looking for that joy. You know, it's a very tender thing that David prayed in his penitential prayer of Psalm 51 after he had sinned with Bathsheba. He had uh, killed Uriah or had Uriah killed. And David knew what it was to feel, again, distance from God. And David, when he prays for God's salvation, says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Maybe you've been missing that joy. Maybe you need to get excited about what God's doing in the lives of people, what he's done for you and can do. Nehemiah felt that such joy was essential to the work of God's kingdom. And so when he went back to perform that difficult task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you're joyous in God, you'll be strong to do what he wants you to do. That's where you're going to get the spiritual strength you need and the joy of salvation. Well, let me give you a closing illustration. Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament was an annual feast that the Jews went through. It took place after the harvest season. After they had brought in their crops, in the middle of that month, they were then to live in booths, in tabernacles, in what you and I might call lean-tos. They were really um, uh, shabby affairs. They were uh, temporary dwelling places. And the amazing thing to me is, that you read in Deuteronomy 16, 14, you shall rejoice in your feast. They were supposed to go out away from the comfort of their homes, away from the wealth of the harvest, from all the convenience and the leisure and the enjoyment that they would have and live in these little lean-tos during the feast. And God said, and you shall rejoice in this feast. It's ironic. At just the time, the Israelites would be most aware of their wealth and most ready to enjoy leisure and comfort from the hard harvest. It was just at that point that they were to resort to primitive living conditions, and God said, and rejoice in them. Why? Oh, God taught a very important lesson, I think. God strips away all outward circumstances so that his people will understand true joy in its simplicity. True joy, true joy is not a result of the harvest. True joy is not a result of a comfortable home and a nice soft bed. True joy comes from the grace of God in knowing who you are where you stand and where you're going. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles then when your joy begins to lag. Things. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles because the reason God sent them out to live in Tabernacles is that they would remember that they would remember that their forefathers had tabernacled across the wilderness to the promised land. And God says you too are tabernacling you may have homes, you may have a permanent city in which to dwell, but in the end, spiritually, you're still tabernacling until you enter into the kingdom of God. 
Understand what true joy is then. True joy comes from knowing that God has shown you grace. We need a reputation for joy because we've got a reason for it. And I've given you a response. So let's get happy. Let's pray. Father, we are happy this morning. We should be happy more often. We're happy because we've been reminded of things that are so precious to us. Indeed, they're the very substance of our lives before you. And we've gotten so confused and mixed up and, and bogged down in the outward circumstances of life. And to strip those things away for us intellectually today, that our minds might be set on the true source of joy, to know that we are tabernacling with you across the wilderness of this life and looking forward to the promised land ahead. Lord, we aren't like so many people that are aimless, that are without direction, indeed without hope. You have given us hope in your Son. And Lord, we know that though our lives don't deserve anything from your hand, and, and you really, if you were to consider our sin and, and just at that, you should be wrathful toward us. And yet, Lord, we know you're at peace with us. You're reconciled to us because of the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, and we remember this morning that he is living now to make intercession for us that he is working faith in us and controlling our lives and bringing us home to glory. Lord, we ask you that you would make us ever mindful of these things, that we would be a rejoicing people, that people would see in us a whistling in the dark, not a false cosmetic, not some kind of hypocritical happiness, but true joy, lasting joy, eternal joy because we've received it from you. And we thank you for all that we are and all you're going to make us. In Jesus' name, amen.